0: Hello friends, you are in Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and soloniere, Kara Martin-Snyder. Each episode of Le Vital Core Salon is a chance for me to introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. Regarding today's guest, I just want to start by saying if a Swiss army knife came in human form it would likely be called a Barbara Oakley PhD. Dr. Barbara Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, and the Ramonica Hall, distinguished scholar of global digital learning at McMaster University. Whew, dusting off my eighth grade Spanish there. Her research centers around bioengineering with an emphasis on neuroscience and cognitive psychology. Her teaching is award-winning. She's won the American Society of Engineering Education's Chester F. Carlson Award for Technical Innovation in Education and the National Science Foundation New Century Scholar Award. What initially drew me into Barb's orbit was her massively successful, which I didn't know at the time, massive open online course called Learning How to Learn which she teaches alongside legendary neuroscientist, Dr. Terence Sainowski. What makes me intellectually crush on Barb a little is how accessible and practical she can make the neuroscience of learning for all of us. And also how comfortable she is thinking and doing things with this really innovative and independent spirit. If you're someone who's ever felt like you're not smart enough you're too old to learn something new, you're past the point of changing lanes professionally, and this could happen if you're like 26 or 96, or on the verge of burning out, chasing achievements, you are in the exact right place in time and space for a dose of inspiration and some totally doable ideas. A little side note and full disclosure, a shameless plug. Because Barb and I also touched on how to avoid task list intimidation, I want to remind all of you listening about the 33K task list project. This is an art slash social activism project that I've been working on for about a year now. My goal is to collect and upcycle 33,000 handwritten task lists into art And change the conversation around obligation and desire for women. If you're a woman listening, or you know a woman who has ever written down a task she wants to get done later, and that can be on a napkin, a scrap of paper, in a formal journal, I want you to visit 33ktasklists.com. Or you can put those handwritten task lists in an envelope and mail them directly to me. Cara at VitalCore. The address is P.O. Box 453 and that's in Hurley, H U R L E Y, New York, 12443. And again, if you want to know more about the project and why I'm collecting them and how many we've collected to date and all sorts of fun tidbits about the project, you can find that all at 33ktasklists.com. I also want to mention for those of you who are listening to this episode on the go, Barb and I are going to mention a ton of resources, especially focused on online learning and more formal programs and her course. But also, I was able to use an excerpt from her book, Mind Shift, which I highly encourage all of you to check out, that lists a whole bunch of different sources of learning. Don't feel like you need to write it all down. It's all in the show notes and it lives over at levitalcoresalon.com. L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. Voila. Meet Barb. Hi, Barb. Welcome to Salon. Oh, Cara, it's such a
1: pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy speaking schedule to drop by the podcast. This is going to be such a fun conversation, I think.
1: I already know it's going to be. <laughs> your background is such an unusual one. And I, I know that kinds of things we'll be talking about are kind of different than I usually have a chance to discuss.
0: Yay. So the listeners have some even contextual idea of who you are. I want to share with them how your bio on Twitter literally reads a female Indiana Jones. I can't think of anything more appropriate for a woman whose list of jobs have included, and I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. Waitress, cleaning lady, tutor, writer, wife, stay-at-home mother, U.S. Army officer, Russian translator on Soviet trawlers on the Bering Sea, radio operator at the South Pole Station, electrical engineer, engineering professor, and co-creator of the world's most popular MOOC, or Massive Online Open
1: Course. <laughs> Did I forget it, anything, Barb? Oh, I don't think so. I think <laughs> you, you pretty much nailed it. and I think... All of the preliminary jobs led to the last one of teaching with Taryn Sanowski, one of the world's largest massive open online courses.
0: You were a self-described goof-off who, and I'm going to quote this from your Mindshift book, didn't show any early talents or special abilities. So what
1: has propelled you? You know, that is such a good question. It may relate to the fact that I've gotten comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. So in other words, when I was a a little kid, my father was in the Air Force. And so we moved all the time. So by the time I hit 10th grade, I'd lived in 10 different places. And I am really an introverted homebody type. So, every time we moved, it was really a gut-wrenching experience. Oh, no, all my friends or whatever, you know, and and I'm shy anyway, so it's hard to make friends and then I, I get to, so I really like that uh, place where we were. And then, right around when I was maybe 14, 15, I began to realize that, wait a minute, I'm always sad about leaving the place that I was at, and I'm really uncomfortable in the new place that I'm going to. But eventually, I get really sad about leaving that place too. So why don't I try to like make the best of it and enjoy it a little earlier than just sort of regretting each place I moved to. And this is a a bit of a roundabout way of saying that when I'm in a new or an uncomfortable environment, why not try to kind of make the best of it there? But I do think that that may have helped it so that when I was going on and I was trying all these different things and, Uh, switching from being a linguist to becoming an engineer when I was 26. And I I thought, oh, I I really don't know if I can do this. And I felt really uncomfortable in this new environment with all these super smart people who obviously were better off than I was because they had gone straight through from high school into engineering and I had not. I I had done very poorly. But I, I felt very uncomfortable, but I just always kept going through the discomfort because I kind of learned to do that um, growing up. You just got to keep going. If you move someplace and you're uncomfortable there, it's too bad. So I, I think that just being comfortable with discomfort helped me to try lots of new things and keep going even despite the fact that sometimes I felt real, well, most of the time, especially at the beginning, I would feel very uncomfortable.
0: Got it. So Barb, being an introvert, how did you weather all of those moves without feeling just completely depleted?
1: I think that I grew more and more reserved, that that made me more of an introvert. So as we moved on, and I remember we moved from way out in the boonies of Texas to Malibu, and I arrived there, and they said, oh, you know, you've got this funny Texas accent, and I wasn't wearing the right jeans. And so I was the subject of a lot of um, ridicule by the hip crowd in Malibu because I was just a dumb kid from the sticks. And so I I withdrew. I uh, rode horses, uh, which is funny. At that time, you could have horses in Malibu, so we we did. <laughs> I remember – We would just ride back up in the hills there and uh, occasionally we'd ride down into the real fancy fuddy-duddy areas and and then the police would chase us. And I remember just (laughs) running with the horses and jumping the the, uh, thing at the end of the road, the block, so the police couldn't come after us. But I withdrew a lot and I did a lot of reading and was very quiet in classes. In fact, I got so quiet that... When I would get asked to get up and speak, I would nearly faint. I couldn't breathe. I was so nervous, which is so funny because I I speak now all the time, all over the place, and uh, I've learned a lot about breathing control, which has really helped with nervousness. But I I think I I withdrew, and I think that withdrawing during adolescence isn't necessarily a bad thing because – I learned to just not be a person who follows the crowd. I watched the crowd, but I wasn't part of it. and even in my adult career today, I watch what's going on with the flow of um, the conversation nationally and so forth, but I'm not necessarily swept up by uh, by the thoughts of that. Uh, and I feel as if I can think a bit more independently about all sorts of things that are going on, especially in in careers and in trying to do independent research that's different uh, and innovative because a lot of research that's out there and a lot of work that's out there, it's really just sort of a tiny additional tweak on what's already out there. For example, for me... I teach with Terry, one of the world's largest massive open online courses on learning, and it's about learning, and and I'm an engineer. I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, <laughs> I, it should be an expert uh, professor of education, but a lot of them, uh, a lot of professors of education um, are not aware of for example, the latest insights from neuroscience and how you can apply these ideas to your everyday life and help improve your ability to learn. So I'm a fan of Thomas Kuhn's Structures of Scientific Revolutions, which is uh, he, he tried to look into the history of science and see who the real innovators were. And the innovators were often people who were either very young So they hadn't been indoctrinated into the ideas of the discipline, and they could think with a fresh eye or or see things with a fresh eye. But the other group of people who made big and innovative breakthroughs were people who had originally been trained in a different discipline. So when they looked at the new discipline, they could see it with fresh eyes, I think Uh, There's much to be said for looking with fresh eyes at a discipline because if you grow up all the way through uh, and you're studying psychology, for example, which I'm fascinated by, it's a little bit hard for you if you have a PhD in psychology to see your discipline from the outside and see the gaps in it, see the, the holes, see where fads are. I mean, in 50 years, you could look back and see what was a fad, but you can't see it very easily now if you're within only within that discipline.
0: This is really important. And I have to say this was a big aha moment for me. And I think how I came to find out about your work was through the learning how to learn MOOC. So I guess maybe one, I'd like to start maybe back up so the listeners have a little bit of a, a clue about what that is and what that looks like. And then, 2 I'd probably like to talk a little bit more about how these transitions benefit people. And I know that's something you cover a lot in MindShift. Maybe there's a condensed version that we can kind of get the listeners up to speed a little bit. What do you think?
1: Uh, sounds good to me.
0: Which one do you want to take first? Should we, should we talk about what the, what the MOOC is? So Barb, what is the learning how to learn <laughs> MOOC?
1: <laughs> oh, so I'm thinking that you're going to be explaining what the, the <laughs> MOOC was. And so I think it is better if I, I sort of give a handle on that.
0: Yeah, you are the expert on that MOOC.
1: <laughs> Although I was surprised because I was in jail last week. <laughs> and uh, and We need was- a
0: clarification on that one, Barb.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was because I was invited to speak at the Las Vegas County Jail and uh, because they are huge fans of the massive open online course, Learning How to Learn. And so I walked into the jail and they knew the course as well as I did. It was really, the inmates were, were spectacular and they had been studying this course. Actually, the course has been used through the jail for several years. And what is the course? It's There's a way, uh, there. This this whole kind of phenomenon of massive open online courses is when you uh, universities will take a a course maybe in machine learning or uh, statistics and probability or electrical circuits and they will put it online with videos of the instructor and quiz questions, and so forth. So you can actually take a, a college course, and sometimes you can even get college credit for these courses that are by top universities from all over the world. And these courses are, they're, they're really awesome. I mean, in many ways, you can take the kind of education you've always wished you could have. For example, for me, when I got out of the military, when I was 26, I had to go back to the university in order to try and retrain my brain from being a linguist, which is what I originally trained for in the army, I, I studied Russian, to becoming an engineer. But nowadays, you actually have access to great college courses online. So, you you don't necessarily have to just stop your life, go back to the university, because you can find these terrific courses. So, about five years ago, I wrote a book called A Mind for Numbers, and um, Terence Sanowski, who's my co-instructor now in the MOOC, wrote the foreword for this book. Uh, we both are big believers in helping to improve math and science education through the country uh, and also just learning and getting the ideas of how does your brain work in practical ways that people can really use because Terry uh, um, he is the Francis Crick Professor at the Salk Institute but also holds a joint appointment at the University of California San Diego which has a Um, a connection with the largest uh, MOOC provider in the English language, which is Coursera. I think it might be the largest MOOC provider in the world. So we were given permission to create a course uh, and it's largely based on the the A Mind for Numbers book, but it is a general course on learning called Learning How to Learn and it has 2.3 million students in it and it, um, it's just a, it's really a popular course. I mean, I never would have dreamed. A lot of it we filmed. My my husband was the man behind the camera, and we just filmed it in my basement. And he and I did um, the video editing for it. And. We even looked at each other, I remember, and, and just kind of went, oh, is anybody ever even going to watch this? <laughs> Why are we doing this? Because 2.3 million watchers later. <laughs> yes. And it was hard, too, to, because we were creating this. We'd never known a thing about how you... You know we didn't have a studio or had no video experience at all, so we did our first videos and uh, was I speaking fast enough? Did it look okay? Is this the kind of thing people will like uh, we We had no idea, and I hadn't really watched any other MOOCs and it turned out that was a good thing um <laughs> Because I was, I was too stupid to know that green screen, which is you just have a green cloth behind you and then you can edit that out uh, with your editing program and just replace it with whatever you want. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. And uh, I got this sort of video editing program for dummies called Sony Vegas Pro. I just edited it so I wouldn't be bored. So I took a lot of time. Sometimes it would take me 14 hours to edit a five-minute video. And that was when my husband had already cut out all the flubs and so forth. But when (laughs) I I looked at it at the end, I I was like, oh, you know, this kind of holds my interest. And what I didn't realize was most institutions were not taking anything like that kind of care with what they were producing. It was – it. It still is often a man uh, or whoever the instructor is in front of a, uh, a blackboard or, or something. And you might have bullet points. It might have a green screen. You might have a few pictures. But usually the instructor is just basically staring at the camera and it's really boring. Uh, it's a good thing I hadn't looked at others like this because then I would have Probably thought, oh, well, I got to really step this down and just make it, you know, not make it so hard on myself. But it's all turned out really well. And that's the long explanation of what is learning how to learn.
0: And what's genius about it is you actually embedded the principles that you were teaching into the editing itself. Like, the screen's not static to your point. Like you're not just droning on like the teacher from Ferris Bueller's day off about some complicated topic. It's like it's broken down into chunks. Things are visually moving. So it's really hard to look away. Like I found myself really drawn in when I took the course.
1: And that's insidiously exactly what was planned. There's Top-down attention, when you make your attention go on to something, and that's what normal teachers rely on, that you have to bring your attention back when it wanders. But with videos, if you do them intelligently, you've got motion and startling and surprising and funny things going on all the time, and that makes people, it's bottom-up, they have to look, they just can't help it. And it's a different way of creating video, but I think it's a, a way that people really like. And then my co instructor, Terry, he was such a good sport, so here he is. Uh, one of the world's leading neuroscientists so he's the Francis Crick professor and he's he's uh, one of only 12 living human beings who's simultaneously a member of the National Academy of Sciences National Academy of Engineering and National Academy of Medicine so so Ooh. when I have <laughs> a little zombie kind of peeking out from behind his head as he's making just cracking some jokes he's just wonderful and and really uh he doesn't stand on this big pedestal of you know um showing off how smart he is he is genius smart but he's just uh, also a very down to earth person and so fun to uh you know to teach the course with we just had dinner with him uh, the other evening and it was uh you know plotting our next adventures <laughs> and uh we're making these videos now for kids uh, about how to learn effectively. And they're going to be all around the world with native speakers. I mean, so Terry and I and Greg Hammons are the instructors in the English version, but uh, for the Chinese version, which will be produced by Tsinghua, uh, it, it will be Chinese co-stars with one of China's uh, most preeminent neuroscientists. And, uh, and they'll be Cantonese, um Arabic, Russian, Ukrainian, Spanish, uh, Portuguese, you name it, lots and lots of different languages. So we're so excited about this next project.
0: This is amazing. And I imagine when you have a pool of 2.3 million fans who have taken, loved, and probably shared the course with other people that they know, that's probably opened you up to an entire community of people that would love to be a part of this
1: it really has in fact that's what makes it so easy um i will get emails an email for example from uh, there's a ro- wonderful russian woman who runs her own educational um sort of company mostly online or partly online and so I just got a letter or an email from her, and we got to corresponding. And I said, well, would you like to help produce something like this in Russian? And lo and behold, she's got things set up with the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, which is one of Russia's top uh, institutions of of higher education. And it's all because of the kind of the connections that the Learning How to Learn MOOC has helped and gender. So I just get these emails and uh, and also I travel a lot around the world and meet a lot of people. And so it's it's much easier to help spread these ideas internationally just because uh, they're so interested in them and, and I have an opportunity to meet them.
0: That is amazing. And I'm so happy to hear this is spreading and especially to kids because I think I'm 41 now and I'm thinking... I wish I knew about this when I was in school. There really wasn't much support. And I think it took me till like my junior year to find out I even had an advisor. Because I was a first generation college student. So I just didn't know the ropes at all. And was sort of winging it and figuring a lot of stuff out on my own. But I can't imagine how much easier it would have been to learn. Especially I picture during Dr. Thomas Keita's financial accounting principles one and two, how much easier those <laughs> courses would have gone if I had different study habits. Yes. Yeah, it would have been mind blowing.
1: I just think of what I did, again, when I was transitioning from being a translator to going into engineering. And if I'd known then what I know now about learning there would be times when I would sp- I would say, I'm not going to turn the page of this book until I understand it. And I would sit there for three or four hours struggling to understand it if I had just turned the page. Then it all clicked and that's when it started to make sense. And I was just, I kind of thought all learning was a very sequential thing and i didn't know all these tricks about what do you do when you when you get frustrated and you can't figure things out yet we know from neuroscience that if you back away from it and get your thoughts off of it 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 actually opens these different neural networks and it's it's really awesome so it's just wonderful to be able to share these new insights from neuroscience from cognitive psychology uh, because a lot of them can make a big difference in how well you're able to learn something and and in reducing your frustration.
0: Yes, I I think back to when I was working in finance and there were definitely a lot of late nights and making financial models. And one thing, it took me a, a little bit of time to figure this out. It took me a couple of years, quite honestly, that when you are working on trying to find an error that is running through a financial model, it can literally be one cell in Excel that you may have accidentally hit the arrow key with your elbow and knocked out that formula that can then trickle through tab after tab and page and cause like these massive errors running throughout it. And Mm. I used to sit there some nights, and I mean, part of that culture was... FaceTime, like if you were sitting there looking like you were working hard, it didn't matter that your brain was producing no output or no real quality output. Uh But you know, if you were trying until two in the morning, then you were a team player. And what I would always find is I would never ever be able to solve it at night. But I would in the shower the next morning think, oh, I wonder if the problem is on this page.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And it would constantly... And when I when I was learning from the course about the focused thinking versus the diffuse thinking, and I was like, "That's why I would wake up at three in the morning and just be dreaming about the solution. That's why I would be in the shower and the solution would just come to me."
1: Yes, and and part of the magic is you do have to focus as you did, but uh, the question is, how long do you keep focusing? Oh, you know, sometimes backing off more quickly can just save you time and frustration. But but you do have to kind of get it loaded in there. So some careful focus to begin with uh, is is an important part of the figuring out process.
0: Do you find as you're out speaking and talking about a lot of these things, that cultures, especially corporate cultures are changing? I feel like I've been in the entrepreneurial space for probably the last decade and kind of away from being in bigger, more hierarchical organizations. But I remember if I had said to a partner or a, a director, you know, back when I was at PwC, like, you know, I just can't figure this out. I'm going to get up and go get a coffee or a cup of tea or take a 10-minute walk. They would have looked at me like, <laughs> are, you, are you insane? like because yeah. because it was sort of like chain to your desk was how to get stuff done and i i also know about myself i was a kinesthetic learner so pretty much strapping me to a laptop in a chair and cuffing me to it was pretty much asking my brain to shut off
1: <laughs> ah yes well there's so much evidence that motion and movement and exercise is profoundly helpful not only in producing brain-derived neurotrophic factor when you exercise. It's this, like uh, it's a factor that really helps dendritic spines pop out, and that's part of the the architecture of learning. But also just being into someplace new, it helps give you a fresh perspective. You actually momentarily go into uh, more default mode network when you're taking these kind of breaks, which is essentially this means you suddenly have access to a completely different web or network in your brain and it's a more far-ranging network and that's what can help you sort of step back take a different approach because neuroscientifically speaking you're actually kind of stepping back using bigger connections ah now you can see wait a minute this is the connection I actually need. And then you can start homing in on the solution when you come back and begin focusing again. So do you think
0: organizations, like when you speak, are people kind of cocking their head to one side and looking confused? Or are they really absorbing it and implementing it?
1: Oh, I I know they absorb and implement. Although to some extent... Learning shows that, as the Russians would say, repetition is the mother of learning. So when you hear about these new techniques one time, um, it can kind of sit, sink in and you can kind of get some of the approaches. But um, when you he- kind of hear about them several times, maybe from different perspectives, so the Pomodoro technique, for example, is an exceptionally powerful and useful technique. And I hear f- all the time from, from people in the Massive Open Online course how incredibly effective it is for them. But sometimes people will even have heard earlier in their life about the Pomodoro technique but they just didn't really apply it. It isn't until they heard it a couple times from a couple of different people that they go, oh, you know, maybe I will give that a try. And then they start using it. And then, of course, they begin to be hooked. That was
0: completely me. You have revolutionized my work just in the past
1: month alone. (laughs) Oh, that's odd. I use the Pomodoro technique. And that is simply you just turn off all distractions so no pop-ups or you you know little cell phone ringy dings and and then you Set a timer for 25 minutes. Focus as intently as you can for those 25 minutes, understanding that you have sort of a monkey mind, so bring it back when you need to. And then at the end, give yourself a 5, 10, 15-minute reward of doing whatever you want to do. And that's your diffuse mode. So that's an important part of the Pomodoro. So for me, I will catch myself surfing the web, kind (laughs) of relax and have some fun. And then I'm thinking you know I'm supposed to be writing this next chapter on the book and then the only way I can get myself to do it is just set the Pomodoro and tell myself I'm going to do 25 minutes on this and it really works. Sometimes I get into the flow, I go longer than 25 minutes but, but I always reward myself at the end but the Pomodoro is definitely one of my biggest productivity tools.
0: I can believe it. And something psychologically happens too. I find when you're only faced with, I keep saying to myself, not even 30 minutes, not even a half an hour. Like it's easy to just say, oh, just do it. Just focus. Just take a swipe at this task that maybe is bigger and complicated and just see what you can get done in under a half an hour. It changes everything and it makes getting into the groove easier.
1: Absolutely. And one thing I, I use it for, too, is sometimes we can be productive but not really be productive in the things we need to be being productive about. So, for example, sometimes it's easier to go through some emails, a list of emails than to actually do that real hard mental digging of writing a chapter about a material you find really confusing and and maybe hard to write about. So you'll end up going off and, you know, working on the emails and working on other tasks that actually aren't the main thing you really wanted to be getting done that day. So I do try to at the usually the night before, I will try to make a little list of the key things that I wanted want to get done, or aspects of major tasks that I want to at least get a part of that done. And I try to put an arrow by the number one thing I think is the most important thing for that day, and what research has shown is that if you do this, you'll actually sleep more easily because you've taken all of these tasks off of your working memory, kind of emptied out your working memory and and put it on paper and then your mind isn't kind of going, okay, oh, I got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, don't forget about that and so it actually helps you sleep. And then for me, it helps me if I do a Pomodoro on that one major thing, first thing, uh, before I get going on anything else that's more seductive and easier. And I find that, that that's a really good way to kind of move productively forward in the kinds of things I'm working on.
0: So I know there's a lot of type A women listening. And one of the things that I see with my clients when we first start working together a lot of times I'll ask, How do you keep track of what you need to do? And sometimes I have to work really hard to stay in a non judgmental place during those sessions because <laughs> it's wild what I hear some days. And I, you know, and I think about how that connects to sleep and sleep disruption and your brain being busy at night and cortisol flooding at night because you're waking up at 3 a.m. thinking, I got to do this. I got to remember to do that. And you're writing stuff down in the middle of the night and you're doing anything but sleep. Right. One thing that stuck out to me is you are a woman who's getting a ton of things accomplished in life, like real achievements, real milestones hit. And you're talking about making a list. And I think one of the things I see with the women that I work with, and even friends, and even myself, some days I'm guilty of it, is putting too many things on a list. Like when you are trying to set yourself up for success the next day, like what are those lists look like? I mean, is this like just a couple of things? Like how are you prioritizing and deciding like what's realistic?
1: What I've learned to do... To try to avoid intimidation is I often deal with two lists. So I'll I will take out a piece of paper and I have the list of stuff I my dream stuff that I would love to get done that day, which is always very over ambitious. <laughs> but then um, I put an arrow by the key thing, and then I have a second list, and it usually is. I try to have maybe three, there's like something magical about three things. I'll pick three things that I can accomplish off of that that working list for the day that are kind of important. And so maybe one important one, one important one, and maybe a kind of a trivial one, but it's kind of funner to work on. And each one might be uh, a half an hour, like a Pomodoro task or something like that. And I will work from my small list and then I'll cross things off. And then I'll add things to this small list and just keep working. So I'm always crossing things off. And then since it's a small list, oh, I can actually kind of finish it. Now I look back at my big list and then go, oh, yeah, okay, now I'll do this, this, and this. I think what I do sometimes when I'll, I'll suddenly get all um, kind of anxious, even depressed about, oh, my word, there's just no way I can handle all of this, I tell myself, That only happens when I'm looking at the big picture of everything that needs to be done and I say, compartmentalize, just look at three little things you can do right now and that's all you need to be thinking about or worrying about and somehow when I do that and I'm I'm able to just compartmentalize and shove all the other stuff away, that relaxes me. And I'm able to just work on those other things I want to do, and it comes out just fine. And I can't always do this, but I'm often up early and working. By early, I mean I'm—I may be working on things even as early as well. For some people, it would be late, but it's uh, you know, six a.m. I'll start working on things. Then I like to call it quits around four. And I, I'm doing the easy tasks later in the day because it's my brain is a little more fogged. But at four, I I just call it quits. And my hubby and I may watch a TV show together if we're not traveling. And I, and then I like to read.
0: Barb, thank you for sharing this. I think productivity can be a weapon for people, and I think the task list can be something we use to make our identity be more buoyant than it needs to be on a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis. So I really appreciate you sharing what this process looks like. And I think this leads to one question I definitely had, and I think we're, we're starting to touch on it now, is from the outside looking in, I was thinking, when does this woman sleep? When does she play? When does she eat? When does she exercise? It's, <laughs> so it, it's it sounds like the good stuff happens at four p.m.
1: It does. Although I I should have said that my husband will often uh, drag me out for a walk earlier in the day, so it isn't like I'm working for ten hours straight. Um, I'll work for a while and then. Uh, We might go for a walk, 10, 11, 12 o'clock, if the weather is uh, conducive for that. And I do try very hard to, uh, for me, I do walking. That's my big thing. And I, I love my Fitbit. And even when we're traveling... Uh, let's say we're driving in the car. Well, uh, my hubby will get out to gas up the car and I will get out to see if I can get at least 500 steps in. <laughs> and it's amazing. I, we can drive somewhere all day and I still will get 5,000, 6,000 steps in just from you know stepping out whenever I got the opportunity to do that.
0: Yes, I can totally appreciate that. I do this I don't wear a fitbit anymore because I think it made the recovering type A woman in me a little bit compulsive <laughs> about like how many steps did I get? So I stopped wearing it and watching it and just focused on am I moving like does my brain feel good? Does my body feel good? Like am I moving enough and tried to make it more of an internal process instead of me looking at the numbers, which I am apt to get caught in sometimes.
1: Oh, I see. For me, uh, it's just kind of helpful for me because I could just sit in the car and be working away on my stuff, and I could do that so happily. (laughs) And and this, like, forces me to get out because I actually have this – this number that I can gather if I get off my backside and get out of the car, uh, somehow it's just kind of helpful without being, you know, I don't get monster about it. I, I don't have to exceed 10,000 steps, which is what they actually recommend. I, I try to aim for around you know, 6,000, 7,000 steps in a day. Uh, sometimes I'm more, sometimes I'm less, but uh, uh, I don't know. It just seems helpful for me. It
0: seems like you're doing a really great job, like balancing the physical movement, having some time with your hubby and family and like social relationships and travel and like nurturing yourself kind of from that
1: functional health model. I do try to do that. Um, and it is a little hard because the reality is that I am, I love working. Uh, and I, I just get very excited about what I'm working on. And so, for a, you know, I would call myself a workaholic, except that I really like what I'm doing. And so, my big thing is, like, pulling myself off to make sure that I do the other things. And fortunately, my my husband makes life so fun that even though I'm like, Oh, no, I don't want to go off, yeah, you know, because I'm working on something interesting. Uh, <laughs> it, it all turns out very well, because it's, uh, we have a lot of fun together.
0: I love this, because I feel like what you're describing, pretty much encapsulates probably the last 10 to 15 years of my life. I, you know, I felt like when I was working in finance, and sleeping on conference room floors, and clocking in a 100 hour a week, and traveling probably like 98% of my time for a few years, I literally just burnt out. Like my guts were falling apart. I was stressed out. I was feeling the effects of just being flooded with cortisol constantly. I think it even disintegrated into irritable bowel syndrome that was just Mm -hmm. unremitting and panic attacks and migraines. I mean, all the physiological components of, of burnout. And I think from that point on, I was like, well, this is not serving me. And it was, you know, probably 10 to 15 years of trial and error to get to what you just described, recognizing I have workaholic tendencies myself. And I like what I do now. So it is hard to put it down. But I have to put, I always think of some of the practices I have as the, the bumper guards in a bowling lane. Like, I've got to keep myself in the lane and stay like where I'm productively working, but not overworking and burning out. Was this something you always kind of knew or was it something you had to learn the hard way too?
1: I definitely have improved and fine-tuned as I I got older. For me now, my biggest challenge that actually can lead to burnout is uh, jet lag because it physically exhausts me. So if I fly to Shanghai and it's a 12-hour time difference or 13-hour, then when I come back, or even when I'm there, I'm, I'm already tired. And then it, it can just make me physically exhausted. And that can lead to kind of burning out on what I'm doing. Um, at the same time, I so love travel that i just try to mentally prepare myself for the fact that i know i'm going to be physically exhausted half the time when i'm either going there or coming back and that's probably my biggest challenge now but over the years i i mean i'm not a perfect person but one thing I do try to do is, for example, my husband's really good. He really is, tolerates my workaholic tendencies. <laughs> but what that does mean is when he says, um, you know, I'd really like you to go uh, go to dinner with us when we're visiting family well, I better do that. I mean, (laughs) it's time for me to hang up my my workaholic spurs and get out there with the family. So I do try to really listen. And, um, you know, he's a really good sport about those kinds of things. And I, I try to be a good sport in return on those, those occasions, which aren't, you know, too onerous or demanding or anything where he's, he would just like to have my company for something we're planning to do. And it turns out beautifully, I'm actually internally so much happier, like when we're visiting our daughter, if if we take the time to go visit our daughters and, and spend time with them, uh, I just feel like it makes me somehow happier. Uh, Even if I'm at the same time, this workaholic side of me is going, oh, no, I don't want to leave whatever I'm working on, um, which is kind of sinful in in a way uh, when you have such a magnificent family. But um, I think I've fine-tuned and I'm getting much better at, okay, work goes by the wayside right now. But part of that is I just get to have so many opportunities to be working on what I really want to be working on.
0: Do you find you're able to make the cognitive switch as well? Because one thing I know in the past I've been personally guilty of, and it's something that the clients that I attract sometimes struggle with, even though they are out of work or they're not physically working on something, it's like when they're doing other activities, they're still mentally closing all of those loops. Are you able to really switch gears?
1: Yes and no. Um, my husband always used to astonish me. He could come home from an intense day of work. Um, he was a executive at Chrysler. Boom, he'd turn it off, and he was just, even if he had a really tough day, he it, it was all gone. And it, when he was home, he was fully present. For me, I do have some trouble switching gears, but sometimes I work so hard that just going out and spending time, you know, with people can sometimes be nice because I can just say, you know, I don't have to be concentrating intently on things, but then that does mean that sometimes I'm, I really have to kind of pinch myself to be more active because You know, I'll get around people and I'm just so happy just sitting there not saying anything, enjoying what's going on around me, but just kind of quiet as a mouse. You know, it's not like I'm as interactive as I probably could or should be.
0: So do you find being an introvert, like to me, that sounds like the classic introvert, right? Being dropped into a group of people and just kind of watching what's happening. Is being around people a source of energy for you, or a drain of energy for you?
1: It depends. Let's say that I'm giving a speech, and I'm exhausted because I've had all sorts of things going on all day long. You know, maybe previous speeches and and so forth. And then I have to give a speech that evening. If the audience is um, a good one, which they almost always are. I find that I do feed off of that and it gives me uh, energy and people will say, oh my word, you were so, just so enthusiastic and they really catch that and they echo it back to me which helps me to be really enthusiastic and just to kind of be enjoying what I'm doing. But on the whole, I am really, really happy to get back to the hotel room and just sit quietly with my husband and uh, and read a book. (laughs) I I mean, it is really a favorite part of the day.
0: You are talking to a sister lover of reading and books. I am literally recording this from my in law's beach house. And. When we go away, my husband always laughs because he's like, which of your friends are you going to bring? And by friends, he means, you know, I never travel with less than a fully loaded iPad in case, God forbid, I lose the two or three physical books that I'm actually carrying
1: with me at any <laughs> physical, at any time whatsoever. That's so much like me. And it's funny because I teach a massive open online course, and I take some massive open online courses, but a lot of times when I'm trying to chill out in the evening, which is when I really have time for to open my mind to the ideas that are in books and the like, I kind of want to avoid like a blue screen, what you might find on a laptop, as opposed to um, Kindle, you know the what is it, the paper white and so forth, which doesn't seem to bother my eyes. I like to slow down of an evening and not be looking at a computer screen, but rather looking at either a Kindle or a a real life book.
0: Yes, there is such a pleasure in that before bed, isn't there?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, And even when I, for example, last night, I got home, it was our it was my big book launch yesterday, and so I had a bunch of speeches and so forth and I get home and it's uh we got to meet some old friends in silicon valley and but I had to get my Kindle out and <laughs> read for just a few minutes uh even though I was super tired and really wanted to follow fall asleep. I guess I don't know if that's a a ritual my mind is as uh Gotten into or what? But uh, it was—it just made me laugh that I had to do that.
0: Well, congratulations on the launch, and that sounds like a really lovely sleep ceremony.
1: It is. I, I now I'm reading this great book called Masters of Doom about the fellows who created the the computer games uh, Doom, which was you know it was a cultural phenomenon there for quite a few years. Yeah, It's just fascinating, and I'd never get into this kind of world if I wasn't able to grab a book and just read.
0: And I love that you also mentioned, besides reading, that you're taking MOOCs yourself. I'm thinking about what you were talking about earlier in terms of making your MOOC and now taking other people's MOOCs. I have to ask, like, when you first started taking other people's MOOCs, did you look at what they produced and then look at what you and Terry made and think, oh, shit, this is totally different from what's out there?
1: It really did help me realize when I was taking other MOOCs that, yes, ours is really different. And I can't help but look at MOOCs now and go, oh, why'd you guys do this? No, don't. (laughs) I mean, I can't help it. Sometimes I... When I give presentations, I will take tiny snippets from MOOCs. And there's just so much stuff out there about this is what you don't do. Don't do this. (laughs) Don't do this. And some of it's just so – you just wonder what were they thinking when they did – but actually what they were thinking was this flies in a regular class. Why can't we just throw it online? And they're just not thinking about things like I recently took a MOOC on algae. And, um, you know, I I don't know why. I think algae is pretty cool and I want to learn more about it. But uh, they had just a lot of different guest professors. Some of them said exactly the same thing that other professors said. So nobody was actually minding the ship to see what people were saying. And it was just sort of a... Well, let's just slap up this guy's um, talk, hour-long talk, and cut it in places. Let's slap up this guy's talk. You know, it wasn't like there was a great deal of care. There was a lot of umming and awing from some of the professors, and the, the slides were incredibly complex, and this is supposed to be an introductory MOOC. And I mean, I still watched it because I really want to learn about algae, but Boy, they. I mean, I'm like, come on! You guys are supposed to be a major university. This is juvenile that you would put something out for the public with this kind of you know, sort of poor production and planning uh, in relation to the MOOC. So I do get, as you can see, I just got on my soapbox and I got <laughs> a little pedestal. But uh, on the other hand, you can catch these MOOCs, um, for example. There was a, a fantastic MOOC by a fellow named I- Idan Segev from Hebrew University, and this was on um, uh, neuroscience. And often, when you take, let's say, you get a book on neuroscience, or um, you, you know, you take some ordinary MOOC on neuroscience, and it's pretty much here's this part of the brain, and this part of the brain does that, and it's basically you're learning the geography of the brain, right? But Edan Sigiv's uh, MOOC was entirely different. It was here's a neuron. Now, if something's moving from left to right in front of you, here's how this neuron takes it, and you. It's almost like an analog computer of sorts, and it's one little part that sticks out on the left can get kind of get a stronger signal from that thing that's coming from the left and here's how it all trickles through your neural systems. And I was just boggled because he could show this information and it wasn't it the best pedagogical technique. No, it could have been better. But he's a, he's a terrific teacher. So I guess I should say he had great pedagogical techniques himself could the university have edited and created something that was uh, maybe a, a stronger, uh, more gripping MOOC? Maybe. But even as it was, he was communicating such great information that I'd never been able to grasp easily before because that video way of presenting material related to moving information was awesome. I could really capture what was going on. And I couldn't have gotten that information nearly as easily from a book.
0: Got it. So the the mixed media is what's helping to make it more impactful for people to absorb it and sort of uptake this information better, and also keep them inspired.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And also, it's You're getting world-class leaders sharing what they know about their research topic. And, oh my goodness, we are so lucky to live now in an age where this kind of thing is possible. And it's not like every world-class leading researcher is a good teacher. Uh, In fact, I would say probably odds are that they're, they're not such a good teacher. But there's just so much great information by the people who are really, really good researchers that we are very lucky to be able to um, to grab their information. And that's the other good thing about MOOCs is MOOCs are really competitive. Um, you're out there. It's not like a classroom where there's no real competition. I mean, uh, if if Dr. Burfel teaches the 8 p.m. section or 7 p.m. section and and then you know Dr. Smith teaches the 3 p.m. section you've got two options that's it it's not like that at all with moocs you can you can find dozens of moocs on really popular topics and there's a website called classcentral.com and classcentral is they like a mooc review website so if you want to find a really good MOOC about you know a writer say Ernest Hemingway or 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 world history or how to do machine learning you can find it that MOOC through class central and the great thing is there are also reviews on that website
0: it sounds like the Rotten Tomatoes of yeah. MOOCs. <laughs> yes, I'm sure the comments are fascinating and a total rabbit hole to fall down. Uh, yes, they,
1: they can be. Fortunately, Learning How to Learn has some great, great comments. And we, I think we have like 5,000 reviews or something like that on Class Central. So so we're doing pretty good.
0: That's fantastic. What has most surprised you from the success of this course?
1: Oh, the success of the course. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that was just mind-blowing for me. And, I mean, you can look back at it and say, oh, well, it's obvious that X. But it certainly was not obvious to us in the beginning. I mean, as we were preparing the MOOC, I didn't know really what other people were doing. So I didn't know if the approach we were taking in communicating the material using green screen and lots of lively animations would actually be acceptable for people. What I now understand is, let's say that you went to a typical school of education and you said, I want you to create a MOOC on learning. They would have said, great, we'll do one for teachers because those are the only people who are really interested in learning. Well, okay, so that would have been the first thing that would have been different about how people created a MOOC. A typical school of education would not have understood that most people are really interested in learning, not just teachers. Uh, then if you said to that school of education, uh, no, 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 we don't really want uh, anything for teachers. We want something for everybody. So it can include teachers, but everybody. Then what you would have gotten is a bunch of padding. And by that, I mean, Two weeks on the history of education, two weeks on theories of learning, two weeks on how babies learn, and finally, you get to a little bit of information about how people really learn, but no neuroscience, because we don't kind of get it ourselves, and people, you can't just teach all of neuroscience first, in order to teach these uh, concepts that grow from neuroscience. But we took that and kind of spun it completely on its head. We just said, you know what? We're going to start from neuroscience because that's where all the great stuff is coming from. And whenever we have to explain something that's a little difficult, we will use a metaphor to convey the the key idea. So the way we approached this was just dramatically different than anything that had been done really in education before. And sometimes people will even tell me, they'll say, oh, you do this course on learning? (laughs) That's a no-brainer. Anybody who ever did a course on learning would have something that would be spectacularly popular. And I just laugh because there have been (laughs) these MOOCs on learning and they often just they they go up and they disappear. They go up, and they disappear because they're so bad. They don't walk the walk. In other words, it's dry, it's boring, it's pedantic, it gives you information that a lot of times you already know, new framework. Uh, that makes it kind of exciting in fact if there's one problem that i have with teaching a course called learning how to learn and giving talks about learning how to learn it's that when people even just hear learning how to learn they kind of go oh it's going to be some psychologists telling us how to (laughs) learn something and I'm trying to learn maybe in software engineering and I'm trying to learn coding and this psychologist has never learned that and so how come they're telling us how to learn when they haven't really walked the walk themselves sometimes, uh, in fact oftentimes, about how do you really learn in very tough subjects like STEM because I love psychology. I absolutely love it. But a lot of psychologists go into psychology because that math isn't their thing. Yet math is the thing that most people really want to learn about. So I think people really enjoy in the MOOC that they're being taught by people um, who actually have learned in a variety of different areas. For example, I I started out and was a Russian linguist and became a professor of engineering. So I switched gears dramatically. Uh, Terry started out as a physicist. Uh, He was a graduate student for John Walker, who was one of the greatest relativity theorists at Princeton. And uh, Terry switched gears uh, to become a neuroscientist, which is really quite different. So, when we're talking about learning, we're not just talking theoretically. We're we're talking from our own experiences, and actually, it has really, really helped. That I've also just kind of knocked around the world in different jobs. Um, being in the military, working at the South Pole, working out on Russian fishing trawlers because it helps you to get a perspective on how often university approaches themselves can be a sort of silo that that doesn't acknowledge the magnificent insights of, of ordinary people themselves.
0: Yes, I think this is something that is so brilliant about what you and Terry have created. I came to the course and found it because I was thinking, I want to start taking some online courses around human-centered design and design thinking because it's something that I didn't know what the bucket of skills I was using in my coaching practice, and even in the podcast to some degree over the last 10 years. I didn't know how those skills came together until probably the last six months or a year when someone pointed out like, hey, those kind of all fit that bucket of of human-centered design. And I started thinking about courses, and I thought about, well, I'm 41, so is learning something new over for me? And I don't even know what I Googled to get there, but that's when I stumbled on the Learning How to Learn course. And when I first signed up for it, and I, of course, sort of Googled you and and Terry, I was thinking, oh, gosh, there are going to be genius academics, but this course is going to be so dry. I came into it with that apprehension. And then it was so useful and entertaining and what I loved about it, it was very practical and action oriented. Like after every block, there was something I could try or experiment with in my own workday in how I was just reading a book different.
1: Oh, come on. Come on. I know the real reason you like the course is you enjoyed the zombies. <laughs>
0: I did. I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for Marvel movies and zombies and vampires and all that good stuff. So yes.
1: (laughs) Well, it is so funny because I've learned after doing the course that zombies are not a good thing in China or the Middle East. Um, Zombies, for example, in China are I mean, they're just like, there's nothing sort of cutesy about zombies in China. They're just icky, yucky things. And in the Middle East, there's respect for the dead. And so, a zombie is kind of making fun of all of that in some sense, or it could be perceived that way. And so, uh, I mean, I've learned so much about the use of metaphors and their cultural relevance or non-relevance for example zombies are just a-okay in south america uh so <laughs> i mean go figure it's but we use robots in some other countries in in the new videos we're developing for uh, for kids and and for example we Short sleeves in some places are not the thing to do, or reference to dogs. Um, so, I've, I've been learning a lot about how do you make something that is a metaphor, which is really powerful for learning, but is not a metaphor that offends someone.
0: Wow. This is the kind of stuff that I love. The stuff around the stuff sometimes. Like, I can't even imagine how many other things like that, that you're learning, that are the complete abstract, like you never would have thought of these things in your basement.
1: Kind oh, of yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. And and we kind of hit it lucky in that I'm kind of a, a square sort of person anyway. So I wasn't doing anything that would be perceived as too far out there in more conservative societies, for the most part. But it's been just a marvel. As I've discovered, you can never make a a metaphor that is culturally – well, it's harder to make a a metaphor that's culturally relevant everywhere. But it's easier – well, I think the important thing is sometimes people will – researchers will say, avoid humor in MOOCs because humor does not translate well into different cultures. And I just laugh at that. Because those researchers are thinking of verbal humor, which indeed sometimes is hard to translate. A lot of times it's hard to translate. But if you use visual humor, oh my goodness, people really, it, it, it just translates really easily for the most part to uh, all sorts of cultures around the world. So you, the more you can use visual humor in whatever you're teaching about online, the better it will translate for the most part to other other cultures.
0: Barb, I want to ask you a slightly different question about the MOOC. When you were making it, I imagine there were moments where you were, felt overwhelmed or like, should I be doing this? And I think there are a lot of women who might be listening to this podcast and think, well, Barb just seems like she's really brave and has a bunch of cred behind her, and that just lets her dive into everything kind of fearlessly. What would you say to those women listening if they were thinking about taking on something new and feeling overwhelmed and feeling, you know, I think even as you describe how cross cultural references may not translate as well and getting over so overwhelmed by those kinds of details that then they sort of shelf the whole project
1: so i like to read biographies and one of my favorites was the biography by Jackie Chan so if you've ever seen Jackie Chan movies he he was and i think still is very big in action style movies where he often is doing incredibly brave things like he's climbing down from the top of a balloon that's at 30,000 feet and he's rappelling off the side and you're just watching this going, my word, how is this man doing this? Or he'll stand there and he's looking sideways at the camera and he's looking totally terrified and a truck just comes right and it's like two inches in front of him. So he's between two trucks and, they, and the one truck races by him two inches away from his face, and he looks completely terrified. And A lot of times what he's doing is looks terrifying when you're looking at him. And when and as part of what's going on in the movie, he himself, of course, is supposed to be terrified. Well, if you read his biography, he actually is terrified while he's doing these (laughs) stunts. And so, he's not acting when he's portraying himself as looking terrified. And uh, I often think that my life is a little bit like that. I I mean, I try to hide the, the inner terror, especially when I'm doing something that's brand new and kind of scary and intimidating. But I'm often just really terrified and I try to take that approach of, I think there was even a book by the name of uh, The One Thing. Um, what's the one thing you can do that can really be, that? when you go to bed that night, you feel like, oh, at least I got that done or I got some portion of that done. And by focusing, making sure that you're putting a little time, as many days as you can on this thing that makes you feel really uncomfortable, that that you're not sure if you can do it, you're really scared about it, but you just kind of make yourself put the time in. And, and not even say that you have to be successful or whatever, but just do what internally, you, you know, your guts say, if I go to sleep tonight, I've got this little part of it done, I'll feel like, okay, I, I did good today. If you can just kind of keep going with those steps, even through the terror and intimidation, um, I mean, if Jackie Chan can... Have You know, face off these trucks that are zooming by him two inches away and be terrified. I mean, what you're doing is probably not as dangerous as that. And so you can take some solace in what he's living through and and just kind of remember, it's okay. It's okay to work through the discomfort. And in fact... Sometimes people will tell me this, oh, I suffer from the imposter syndrome, I always feel like a fake, I'm not as good, I feel really uncomfortable doing whatever I'm doing because these other people are so much better or whatever. I think the imposter syndrome is a powerfully positive force, feeling really uncomfortable Like, you're not as good at other people, and this is really a difficult thing to be doing, and you're not sure you're capable of doing it. That is a super good thing, because the problem in society today, it's not underconfidence. It's overconfidence. When you go into something, you say, man, I got this. I'm going to do it. For example, the, the students that come into my class are all cocky. Yeah, I got this. I'm, gonna, I'm really going <laughs> to ace this course. Bayesian statistics, no problem. Those are the ones who struggle because they can't change and grow internally with as much ease as the person who says, you know, can I really do this? I'm not sure. I'm older. Um, uh, you know, all these young whippersnappers in the class. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's the ones who think they who are not sure they can make it, who for the vast majority of the time are the most successful in my courses. And I think
0: this leads to a question that I like to ask a lot of my guests, but I really want to hear your perspective. And I've been I've been waiting for this. When it comes to success, how do you measure that for yourself? Because you've been in so many different roles and i think one of the things that i often hear is from a lawyer who's like well i'm at the head of my practice so now what or i'm the head of my medical practice for a doctor i've spoken to now what most people have a singular point of focus in their career but i can't imagine that's the case for you so how do you measure success for yourself
1: I have lots of different metrics. And in that sense, I'm always succeeding because by some <laughs> metric, <laughs> uh, things are successful. So um, so writing a book and getting it published is, is a success. And then doing well with that is a success. But for me, my, my real ultimate goal is not to you know, not to publish articles. Um, For example, doing research articles is, um, I I do some of them and I think it's a good thing, but you can, I, I see professors all the time who are just caught up in this metric of how many articles can I publish as opposed to the quality of the articles they can publish. In other words, publication of all different types is, important and can be a measure of success, but for me, the real ultimate measure that I'm often asking myself is, is this really helping people? Is it really um, helping society? So I guess I have a really, really high bar for success Mm -hmm. in that, um, you know, is this making an impact on education? part of my research involves an area called pathological altruism so it's it's when you have really good intentions but your good intentions are actually kind of involved in making you feel good but they're actually not truly helping the people you want to be helping And so I'm always aware when I'm doing things. I'm like, am I being pathologically altruistic? Is it just making me feel good about what I'm doing? Or is this really going to um, have an impact in a way that positively affects people's lives? So I guess I'm always asking that question. And I think because I'm always asking that question, it makes me think bigger and bigger in the kinds of projects that I'm working on. So I'm not just going, oh, okay, my next thing is going to be, I'm going to do another book on this. Um, I- instead, it's like, okay, well, how can I give these, this information for free for kids on videos maybe? Oh, yeah. I'll see if I can get some funding from a university who would like to work with me. So now these kids' videos, uh, they're going to go on Microsoft's worldwide education platform. And, um, you know, I'm working with all these other universities. So it's because I'm asking this question constantly of, you know, is what I'm doing really helping? Um, And it kind of helps get me out of that mindset of, oh, I just got to do research papers. Oh, I just got to do books. Um, but start thinking in much bigger, bigger ways now. Now I'm looking at um, an app. So and so and uh, fun. Uh, yeah, and you know games and so forth. So you know it, it's it's nice for me because it drags me out of that comfort zone. I'm really comfortable now making online courses, and I'm really good at it. But do I want to stay in that comfort zone? Oh, I'm used to being uncomfortable. Uh, it kind of makes me comfortable to be uncomfortable. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so it keeps me moving on.
0: How do you keep your energy up? Because I think some people are really averse to being outside of their comfort zone. Like that is terrifying for them, not a source of comfort. How do you not get depleted?
1: I also have a nice little world. I can, even if I've been you know, Qatar or Singapore, I can go back to the hotel that evening and read my books. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, kind of read about, go into worlds that where I'm relaxing. I don't have to do anything. Uh, it's super fun when my husband and I get to travel together. So we, we're able to you know take a little time and go off and see this or that. So basically I have a uh an evening of replenishment most evenings, not every evening. Um for example, last night was a you know the big uh, big presentation with the book launch, so we were back at eleven o'clock last night because we also wanted to see an old friend in the area, and uh, who's the founder actually of Class Central, uh, the person who or the the, the company that does these um, this MOOC uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, platform that evaluates MOOCs, but uh, but most evenings I'm able to just kind of replenish myself and. It's almost like I can feel a switch switching. I'll I'll be going, 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 and I'm like, oh man, I want to get that these last few little emails done. Oh, I, I want to get this last little part of the um, uh, the story written. Um, but then all of a sudden, sometime later in the day, it will uh, this internal switch will go. Okay, <laughs> you had it. <laughs> it just. <laughs> Switch that brain off. It's time to pull out the, the Kindle and start doing some fun reading or or, or just go off and relax uh, with my hubby. And it's almost like the switch. And if I pay attention to it, um, although sometimes I have to ignore it if if there's really some big project that needs. And then I'm like, switch, you have to go into hiatus for now. Uh <laughs> But but most of the time when I listen to it, I think it helps me to keep replenished.
0: Very important. And thank you for sharing that. Our conversation has taken us through the world of moocs and your creation process and how you set yourself up for success. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know?
1: What I would like them to know is something that grows from your own story as well as from mine. So your own story is you've kind of launched into a, a very different area that no one would have predicted from your past you know, involving CPA restructuring of debt and so forth. I think you bring these magnificent perspectives from your past into what you're doing now. And people, I think, often forget. I mean, they think if they're jumping into a new area, that all of their past is not relevant in that new area because it's completely new, for example. But actually, you bring in these insights into your new area from your past that can help you to do a better job, be more creative, think in ways that are actually helpful for what you're doing. And certainly from my own past, taking that leap, jumping into a new area, trying something new. Here I was almost 60 years old and knew nothing about how to create videos. (laughs) I mean, I could push a button on a camera. So I went to YouTube. (laughs) with my husband and just learn how to do that uh so it it doesn't matter even when you're older you can switch and learn new things do new things i I will admit if you're 75 years old you're probably not going to get into med school um and you know it it is probably not going to be but there is still so much you can learn and do and uh, that it you know, in in a new world that it is awesome nowadays, and especially with the online learning materials that are available. So, uh, so I just say, keep your mind open, keep your fear if you decide to go into something new, because that fear can actually be a valuable thing. But at the same time, don't let that keep you from opening your mind and your heart to new adventures.
0: Barb, Thank you so much for helping me support other women today, letting us learn from your amazing and varied experience, and all of your research. I am truly humbled to have had this conversation. And thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, Kara, it's an extraordinary pleasure. I love your questions you're magnificent and uh and so thank you so much for allowing me to share
0: thank you barb have a wonderful day hi there it's cara again i'm back Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you found Barb as fantastic a guest as I did. I want to remind you all that you can find the show notes, including all of the people, books, resources, and really a huge roundup of all the MOOC learning-related resources from this episode, all in one handy-dandy place, and you can find it at levitalcoresalon.com. If something in this show made you think of one friend, one family member, or one coworker, please share it with them in whatever way is most convenient for you. Not only will it help them, but it will also help this podcast stay free for all of you. I know you hear the guests and I talking during each episode, but this podcast wouldn't be possible without all of the people that contribute their time and energy to the show. And I want to thank Marlena Brown of Tarture Perigree for helping set up this interview between Barb and I. And as always, my amazing producer slash husband, Craig Snyder, Darlene Victoria for helping me keep everything on the rails behind the scene and making sure all the little production pieces and links and bits and baubles are getting where they need to be so that it's easy for you to find them. And I also want to thank rishi dear for contributing his creative magic and letting me use and run with this awesome theme song that was written by him and performed by the high dials and you can check out rishi's new side project mean m-i-e-n and last but not least don't forget you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy don't let bullshit or burnout stop you